Welcome to the GC Podcast, a podcast to help you develop into the healthiest ministry leader you can be by sharing practical ministry experience. Here's your host, Kara Garrity. Hello, friends, and welcome to this episode of the GC Podcast. We are all about exploring ministry practices in the context of Grace Communion International Churches. I'm your host, Kara Garrity, and we are welcoming back for today's episode, John Rittner. As a reminder, John Rittner has been a pastor for 20 years across different contexts, and he's the author of Positively Irritating, Embracing a Post-Christian World to Form a More Faithful and Innovative Church. He works with pastors and denominations to help them uh, discern and, and respond to what does their innovation journey look like to adapt to a post-Christian world in their very own context. If you haven't listened to our previous episode, don't miss out. Go on ahead and check it out before you dive into this episode because you don't want to miss it. It was a fantastic conversation. So welcome back, John. Thank you so much for taking your time again to be with us today. Absolutely, Kara. Looking forward to continuing on here. Absolutely. And so, you know, in the last episode, we talked about this, um, you know, what it what it means, what it can look like for us to to respond to the reality of post-Christian context and what it means for the church um, to do that and, and a posture of, of mission and, and being the church and discipleship in that context. And so for me, I'm the development coordinator at this particular moment in, in GCI. And so I really like to think about things and look at things through the the lens of development, the formation of the church and and people and and even from the perspective of leadership. So I'd really love to to dive a little bit into that today. Um, what does this mean for us in terms of leadership, development of people, discipleship? And so I I just want to start with if it's if it's all right. There's um, one particular quote from your book that I want to pull that really stood out to me from a development mm. perspective. If 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 I have permission yeah. to uh, Please read it, read <laughs> it. some of your words back out at you. All right. So you said when, um, you know, you were talking about some of the, the background of, of how you got to where God is bringing you in this journey. And you said that in a crisis of leadership that, quote, I confess that my enjoyment of being on the platform on Sunday mornings and my personal fulfillment from large group teaching led me to perpetuate a form of church where some gifts and some disciples were elevated above others rather than equipping every person to help others encounter God for themselves in his word. I encourage them to invite those people to church to hear our pastors speak. Church members with ideas for new initiatives were often buried in bureaucracy by leaders who needed to approve every step rather than being encouraged to discern how God was calling them to join his work in the world. And so this really, really stood out to me. Um, as I think about leadership development, the development of, of people for participation in ministry and, and mission, because, you know, what did I go to seminary for, John? <laughs> <laughs> so I'd love, I'd love to, to talk about this. Um, even through the framework of, of in GCI, our, our process of development, we use the framework of engage, equip, empower and 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 encourage and and so even just just through that framework um you know how how do you engage so many people in developing in missional in engagement what does that what does that mean what does that look like or even just dig a little bit deeper into this idea of equipping many to yeah, participate yeah. in what God is I love doing. that. I love that development kind of pathway or process of, of engage, equip, empower, encourage. And, and honestly, I kind of contrast that to the way I think most disciples in the last 30 years were trained in their local church, which is that their key role was not to do any of that, but it was simply to invite, you know, mm. it, it was to invite their community uh, onto the, the church property on a Sunday to hear the professional to maybe be part of a program and that if they did that, they would, you know, be discipled. But um, the analogy that I use in my book that really resonated with me in, in kind of the, um, you know, the the way that we had reduced the role of the of the disciple down was this idea of uh, of a timeshare um, 
recruiter. Mm. If you've ever been to Las Vegas or to Daytona Beach, or for us, it was back in Williamsburg, Virginia, there's always somebody working the parking lot at the local Denny's or IHOP whose job it is to try to invite and recruit someone to sign up for a timeshare tour, you know, and if you've ever met that person, you know, they're very charismatic and persuasive. They might have a little invite card and they walk with you from your car to the door and they say, Hey, where are you from? We'd love to, you know, would you like to go to Bush Gardens? You want free tickets to Disney? You know, we've got this cool adventure for you. All you have to do is take a, a timeshare tour. And if you're, you know, if you've never done that, it's worth doing once mm -hmm. just to learn your boundaries and whether or not you can actually say no to a timeshare salesman. <laughs> Um, but that person's job, they really have only been trained to do one thing, which is to invite someone uh, to sign up for a tour. And then another process takes over where, you know, you as the invitee, you go to another place and you get get a little hospitality and then you get on a tour. And then eventually someone, a, a, a trained professional behind the final curtain is the one who tries to close the deal and to get you to sign up. Um, and you would never trust the guy in the parking lot or the woman in the parking lot to close the deal. Mm -hmm. They're different skill sets. And I realized one day, like, this is kind of how the American church operates. We, we tell our ordinary disciples, hey, 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 closing the deal, so to speak, you know, someone really deciding to, to be a disciple, that's a skill set that you don't have. All you can do is invite people in. So you go out into the parking lots, into the neighborhoods, and you meet people and you give them an invite card or you send them a link and, and invite them to come to church on Sunday, and then we'll take over from there. And, and that is just such a um, disempowering way of forming a disciple. And honestly, it's become a very ineffective way of making new, new disciples in post-Christianity because people aren't interested in coming to a, a church anymore. And so, um, you know, you have to find a way to, to say that person in the parking lot needs to have all of the skills necessary to make a disciple in the parking lot. Mm -hmm. You know, to stick with my analogy, do they have all the tools necessary to sell a timeshare right there on the spot? You know, mm -hmm. and that's a different level of training. So not only can they in, engage someone out there, but are they equipped and empowered to actually do the disciple making in that space? And are you encouraging them amidst all the failure that is takes place, you know, living this modern disciple making life? So, um, you know, yeah, the, the analogy of the, the, the passage from my book that you read was my own realization that I wasn't actually... Um, empowering anyone to be disciple makers. All I was doing was giving them the tools to invite people to come hear me and I would take it from there. It was a very professionalized version of ministry. And like you said, it's kind of in my mind why I went to seminary. I went to seminary to be the guy who gets to do the ministry, mm -hmm. right? Um, but it was actually kind of a mercenary model that we were perpetuating where the average Christian, they just paid me to do the ministry, like in the old days where, you know, mercenaries were were hired uh, soldiers that, you know, didn't give a rip about your specific cause, but you paid them money and they went out and did the, the fighting for you so you didn't have to do it. And I realized the American church in some ways, all we tell people is, hey, you pay the salary, you pay for this building, you pay for the programs and we'll do the ministry. Um, mm. And the, the problem with that is, again, not only is it becoming less effective, but ministry is God's gift to us. Yes. It's not our gift to God. And so you're, what you're actually doing is robbing, you're stealing that experience from the individual follower of Jesus who doesn't get to be in the action and to participate in the life and ministry of Jesus out in the world. And so yes. um, it's, it's selfish, if anything. And this is what I was, all of my own kind of deconstruction and repentance was, man, what I'm doing is it's not good. And, and I actually need to find a way to think of myself not as the chief ministry doer, but as the chief equipper of disciples who can do the ministry themselves, you know? And so stop being atop the pyramid, so to speak, a hierarchical structure, and instead kind of turn that thing sideways and think of myself as equipping and empowering and sending others out into the world. So not a mercenary mindset, but a mobilization mindset to train people up and then release them out into the world. Mm. I love what you say about this idea of, of robbing followers of 
the participation in the life and ministry of Jesus because when I when I think about what what discipleship means what it what it looks like holistically right a robust discipleship participating in who jesus is what he's doing in our midst is part of that right and like you said to just leave that to the professionals i think um allows us to be satisfied with an incomplete discipleship and so as leaders that's almost an irresponsibility right (laughs) to to allow ourselves to be contented with that to think that that's the more responsible model while convincing ourselves sometimes that um, we're doing that out of responsibility because I joke that, you know, why did I go to seminary? But I think often that is the thought, you know, well, we're the trained professionals. And so we should be the ones that are, um, that are, you know, responsible to, to do all of these things, right? Because maybe somebody might exegete the passage wrong when they're talking to someone about Jesus or something like that. And so out of, out of um, this idea of being responsible, we're actually, I think, um, sometimes being irresponsible with the discipleship of, of people in, in our church community. Totally, totally. I remember um, about five years ago in Hollywood, a young female actor was in our living room talking to my wife and I, and she said, um, you know, I think God is calling me into ministry. Mm. And I thought, okay, what do you mean by that? You know, and then she started saying, well, I think I need to go to seminary. And I was like, okay, so well, here's the problem. I said, uh, if you, I said, again, you can clarify what you mean, but I believe every one of us is called into ministry. And if you go to seminary and then try to take a job at a church, you're going to be sitting right next to me on a church staff. And we're going to be strategically trying to figure out how to reach actors in Hollywood. But right now, (laughs) right now, you are an actor in Hollywood, right? You are embedded in the industry. You have friends who are actors. You know the rhythm of that life. You're an expert on it. Why would I want to extract you from that culture to have you come work on a church staff? How about this? How about you stay an actor in Hollywood and I work with you to equip you to have a ministry mindset to try to reach fellow actors in Hollywood? How about I train you to be a a missionary, a disciple-making missionary to other actors? Um, And it was like, you could see a light bulb kind of in her mind go on like, oh, could could I do that? Is that a thing, you know? Um, I mean, for so long, if you've grown up in the church, if, if God put a call on your life to go into ministry, you just assume that meant pastoral ministry, right? Yeah. To, to be on a platform because that's how we defined it. And so I think more and more, it's trying to, number one, help every individual disciple realize we've all been called into ministry. We all have different expressions of that ministry. It might be my ministry, which is an equipping of others ministry, or it might be a frontline disciple-making ministry of people in you know the the missionary context that I've been sent to as a, a an actor or a, an athlete or a, a you know a mom. Um, but that, that's a it's a huge mindset. The the other I mean, you use the word like irresponsible or unfair. I almost wonder sometimes as a pastor if it for me personally if it was even more devious than that. Really, I mean, mm. you know, I use the analogy in the book of a, a medical term called uh, Munchausen by proxy, mm, which, mm-hmm. you know, is a, it's a term in the medical community for a parent who has a sick child and gains so much identity and value and significance in life for caring for that sick child, that even when the child begins to get healthy, the parent finds a way to poison the child to keep the child sick. It's a way mm. of saying my value comes from you being dependent on me. And if you are no longer dependent on me, I won't have value. So I create you. I, I basically force you to be sick. And it, it sounds like a horrible reality, but it's, it happens. You know, it, it happens because of mental health issues. And I remember hearing a, a friend of mine describe it. And I thought, oh, my gosh, the American church is, is performing spiritual Munchausen by proxy. We are in many ways, our lead pastors are, I wonder if we're actually keeping the community malformed keeping them sick so that they need us to do the ministry rather than getting them fully healthy, fully equipped, fully mature and fully mobilized so that they actually don't need us anymore, you know, but that would require a whole new mindset for me. And if I'm getting my identity and my value, my belonging from them needing me 
I'm going to be in trouble when they don't need me anymore. Now, what I would say is, don't worry, there'll always be people who will need you. And the more you equip others, you'll you'll never be without a job. Mm -hmm. But it definitely changes your mentality to say, my job is to, uh, like a good parent, to bring you to a point of maturity and release you so that you don't need me anymore. And I think that's the call on the American pastor today is to be more of an equipping, releasing, sending pastor and sending organization than, um, you know, creating an organization that is dependent on you and your skill set. Yes. And I, you know, as, as, as you say that, I think about our model of, of leadership in GCI, of, of team-based pastor-led, and that's really what that speaks to, that we don't need to be so pastor-centric where it's all about the pastor or all about the professional or vocational minister, but it's really about how can um, the vocational or professional be equipping others, building teams so that we're um, all able to, in our unique ways that we've been gifted by by Jesus, to participate in his life and ministry and to be stronger as we do that together. Because <laughs> there's even, you yeah. know, I think that theologically we refl- re- reflect who God is better when we participate in, in his ministry together. And then there's even the practical side that a, a team is always going to, a whole community is always going to um, be able to, to participate and connect and disciple more than than if just one person is yeah is i mean that that's things. the incredible reality of the trinity is that um the the essence of god exists in relationship the essence of god is unity amidst diversity it's three distinct separate personhoods that are in perfect unity in in relationship with each other and so um you know, to represent a God on earth, um, there, there has to be relationship there. It's very hard for one individual missionary, one individual person to be able to represent the fullness of who God is. This is why Jesus said, you know, he created a body and his body has many parts. And so um, often when I work with people who say, I feel like I'm the only one in, in one setting, I say, man, start praying that God will reveal to you others it may not be from your local church but others who follow jesus who are in the similar spot you know and that's another thing kind of in a post-christian world is getting out of the tribalism of like well you know my church my denomination my body and just saying like man i will work with anyone who names the name of jesus i'll partner with anyone who wants to see this environment flourish you know they may not even be a fully formed follower of jesus but if they care about justice or love or grace or beauty I'll work with them, partly because our relational connection is going to express something to others that is more powerful than just what I can express as a soul person. Right. Right. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I'd love if you could um, speak a little bit more to... Um, maybe the the hearts of our pastors who are listening and and speak to that that challenge of making that shift from maybe a more professional pastor centric model of ministry to more of a a role as an as an equipper and and what that journey is is like the good the bad and the ugly right because that's i think a huge shift in in many ways so could you speak a little bit more to that in the the heart of our pastors who may be listening yeah, you know, I mean, every pastor is different in, in terms of what their sense of calling was and what their their gifting is. You know, I know there are some pastors who uh, were really drawn into pastoral ministry for kind of from an academic point of view, from a love from studying God's word and original languages and thinking about how to communicate and teach that on a Sunday morning. And so, you know, there, there's a joy in 10, 15, 20 hours a week of, of personal study and then presentational um, preaching on a Sunday morning that, um, you know, they, there's a fear that if all of a sudden they become equippers, they won't have time for that, you know? Um, you know, and then I think for others, there's a, just a, a challenge of trying to figure out, um, you know, how do you get access to the lives of people to, to engage with them, right? Like I'm, I'm in a, a church office five days a week, seven days a week, and my people are out there in the world and, Uh, The only time I see them is on a Sunday morning. And, you know, how do you turn Sunday morning into an equipping environment? So I recognize there are a lot of challenges in all this. 
you know, I think one of the key philosophies that, you know, uh, has been essential for me when I think about equipping others is just looking at the life of Jesus and realizing that Jesus did very little alone. The only time he's alone is when he's breathing in the life of, of God, his father. You know, he takes time for rest, for Sabbath, to pray. But other than that, Jesus is always including others in his life. And so, you know, as a as a pastor, I think one of the best equipping things you can do is constantly make space for someone else. Don't do anything as a pastor alone. You're studying the word. Who who would be who would benefit from studying with you? Uh, you're going on a pastoral call to visit a, a, a widow or, a, you know, someone in the hospital. Who could benefit from from you modeling that skill in front of them? You're getting ready to lead a, a you know, a strategic meeting. Who would benefit from being part of the planning and preparation for that and then sitting in on the meeting? Um, and so, you know, that could look like a formalized internship program. But honestly, I think it looks more like opportunities for people to to be in your life um, and to be mm-hmm. very generous with your time. You know, so, um, you know, as a as a pastor, I often would think like anytime I had an opportunity, I think who can sit in the seat next to me? You know, I have a, I'm speaking at a conference. Who could come with me? Um, and, you know, and just that life on life opportunity to process some of the things that I'm doing and to discuss it and to debrief it um, is, I think, essential. So, you know, that's one of the mindsets that I try to work with leaders on is, is just to make space for modeling that the skill set that you have is important for others. Um, and then I think the other is to embrace a, a, pa- a posture of curiosity towards your people and to say, mm-hmm. What are the challenges for you as a, a mechanic, an actor, a, you know, a, a store clerk? What are the challenges for you to live the life of Jesus in the places where you you live, work and play? Mm. Um, what sort of equipping do you need? How do I make a student centric form of discipleship, you know, where I'm aware of your your reality, your needs um, and, and start with that rather than starting with my assumptions of, of what does it mean to be a disciple, you know? Um, mm. I, you know, it's a, it's amazing to think about, um, the unique ethical challenges, the u- unique, um, contextual challenges that a lot of our people have out in the world every day. Um, and so, you know, one of my favorite skills even here in Hollywood was actors who would say to me, they have a hard time discerning what roles to take, um, when mm. they're offered a job as they look through a script and they decide, you know, I, I'm, I know I'm pretending, but I'm also you know, maybe there's a, a level of spiritual darkness. Maybe there's some acts of sexuality. Maybe there's just something I'm not comfortable with. How do I discern how to do this? Um, and I remember thinking, well, I didn't take a class on that in seminary. I don't know, <laughs> you know, but but let's let's talk it through together. Let's figure it out, you know. Um, and, and so we would have conversations about how do you listen to the spirit and, and discern you know, uh, right and wrong and these sort of things. And, and how do you express that even to a director or a producer who might want to hire you in a way that mm-hmm. is not condemning or weird, but in a way that is potentially winsome, you know, and builds a relationship and actually represents mm-hmm. Jesus in a positive way. So there are a lot of skill sets that I wasn't trained for as a pastor that the average missionary, disciple making missionary needs in their day to day life that, you know, I would never think about unless I asked them, what do you actually need to be equipped in to succeed? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, (laughs) you say um, both of those things, actually taking somebody along with you in everything that you do and having this posture of curiosity about what, um, the, the people that you're pastoring or, or leading actually needs to, to be disciples, to be missionaries in their context. That sounds like it takes a lot of time. <laughs> just a lot of time. <laughs> a lot more than just going ahead and doing things on your own and doing things how they've always yeah. been done. <laughs> yeah. So what, I mean, what would you, what would you have to say on a, on a practical, on a practical level in your experience? Has it, has it been worth it? Yeah, I think that, you know, ultimately uh, any individual person who feels a calling into kind of pastoral ministry, equipping ministry, you know, someone listening to this podcast who has that job as a pastor, who's feeling the burden of a, you know, a team-based pastor-led church and going, well, that that's me. I'm the pastor. I'm the one who's leading. 
I think the reason they get in, involved in all this is because they have a heart, a passion to see kingdom transformation. They want to see new disciples made. They want to see, you know, uh, people and places flourish, look more like the kingdom of God. They want to see individuals surrender their life to Jesus. And so, um, you know, I, I think that there's a way of tapping into that motivation and getting back to that and saying, Lord, this is what this is what you called me to. And I want to always keep that, your calling, your your nature at the center of who I am and say anything else, the tactics, the strategies, the approaches, even my daily practices, I, that I surrender all of that. And that may need to change, you know, but I'm going to keep this calling centric. And, and I think when you kind of really focus on that calling and willing to say, Lord, I'll do anything. I'll, I'll do anything mm. to be more effective at this thing you called me to. It helps you kind of surrender maybe your established ways of, of doing ministry. You know, maybe you realize mm. I'm not going to have 20 hours a week to study the, the scripture. Maybe I'm going to have 10 hours a week to study the scripture. And I'm going to have to be okay with that sermon and trust the spirit to fill in the gaps because now I'm spending 10 hours a week investing in everyday people or visiting them in the places they live, work and play to be curious about that. Um, I, one of my mentors, Dave Gibbons, you know, said to me that, you know, after a, a sabbatical he had had, he felt like God said, you know, you need to cut your preaching time in half because it's not an effective way of discipling people anymore in this culture. Mm. What you need to do is take all the extra time and actually spend it in their context, you know, one-on-one -on -one or in small groups with them, contextualizing God's word more. Um, mm. And I remember being like, did your preaching suck? <laughs> you know, like <laughs> you're, you're Dave Gibbons, bro. You're a main, you're a platform communicator at big conferences. And you're telling me that you're spending less time, you know, like mm -hmm. I don't have any of your skills. I need to be spending even more time. And he said, no, he goes, here's the thing. It made me more dependent on the spirit. Mm -hmm. And he said, even in the moment of, I sense the spirit speaking more to me, guiding me more, directing me more. Um, than I ever had when I brought a fully formed, well-prepared manuscript up there. And he said, I learned that it was, you know, God was just, he had my back, you know, and I thought, oh, that's beautiful, you know. So, um, you know, even as I was trying to do that in the last seven years or so, where I, I really did, I, I spent a lot, um, I was more intentional about my my teaching time and spending less time in preparation and more time in actual, you know, practicing with people. Uh, I just sensed, that miracle of, you know, the wedding of Cana, where I would say to the Lord sometimes like, Lord, I feel like I'm about to get up in the pulpit and pour out some water and I'm trusting you're going to turn it into wine, you know, because <laughs> I got a pitcher full of liquid, man. And it just kind of looks like water on the, on the paper right now. But I believe that, you know, you, you're the one who led me to this practice of investing more in people and, and less mm -hmm. in a, a sermon. And sure enough, I'd have moments where people come up and say, oh my gosh, God spoke to me so much through what you said. And and I realized like, yeah, I, I couldn't have planned that if I wanted to. So, yeah, um, yeah. I, I think the, the, the heart of every pastor is to want to see that gospel centered transformation in people's lives and just trusting that, you know, uh, the skills that lead to that may be different, but Jesus is still doing that same work. Mm. Yeah, that's a good word. And to be open to that, maybe it, it will look different, maybe um maybe how you spend your time will shift a little bit and to be open to following how god may be leading in mm. in that um and in this this season of your leadership of his his members of his church yeah, yeah. that's good that's good um and so speaking a little bit of of um or speaking more into that idea of of equipping and being the in the role of, of equipper as a pastor or as a leader, even um, as an avenue champion, we, we think of um, those as, as primarily being equippers and, and team builders as well. What what does that equipping look like to you? What are what are the things folks need to know? How do you go about about equipping folks to be um, active participants in ministry where they live, work and play? Yeah, you know, in, in our um, context, in our previous podcast, we talked a little bit about the reality of kind of post-Christian culture and how in many ways um, the, the culture that we are living in as Christians is, is a, um, we no longer have home field advantage. You know, most, many of the people who live around us, especially in urban centers on the coasts, you know, they don't have a Christian worldview. Uh, they don't necessarily think in terms of, of Christian ethics or 
uh, Christian values. That there may, there's a lot of terms in Christianity that they don't use. They, they may not know the Bible implicitly like people did a hundred years ago. And so, in many ways, it you know to to be a Christian and try to make disciples of Christ in this culture is a cross-cultural reality. Um, it's actually a lot more similar to let's say being a, a an American and being sent as a missionary into a foreign country, being sent to Indonesia mm-hmm. or Africa or, you know, uh, just pick, pick any country where you might be sent as a foreign missionary. Um, and there's a skill set that you would be trained by to go live as a missionary in a foreign country. Uh, and in fact, this was part of my training going to Europe. I mean, again, Western and, um, you know, English was actually a very acceptable language in Brussels because it's the spoken language of the European Union. But still, you know, when I went overseas as a a church planning missionary, I was trained in a set of skills. And I realized in coming back to the U.S., the the way they equipped and trained me is actually the same sort of equipping that our people need today. You know, and so I I think of a missionary as having six primary skill sets. And so how do we equip our people in these skill sets? The first thing a missionary does is they join a social group. You know, they, they embed into a local place. You know, for us, it was moving to Brussels. Here, living in Los Angeles, I, I ask people all the time, you know, what is the, the neighborhood of the network that you've been placed in? What is your social group? Mm. You know, uh, I live in Burbank. I, I play basketball at the Y. I uh, volunteer at a local golf course as a marshal. My wife um, is uh, active at a local hospital. I mean, these are our social groups Um, where we encounter others. And so when we enter into that space, we want to enter into it um, it uh, with intentionality in the same way a a cross-cultural missionary enters into that local Mm. environment. And so um, when you do, once you kind of identify those spaces in your life, and we sometimes call them first, second, and third spaces, the places you live, work, and play, you know, play is like um, social gathering spaces, anywhere from a, mm-hmm. a bar to a gym to a library to a music, you know, uh, class you might be taking. But once you engage, the second practice then is to learn the, the customs and the language mm. and the culture. Uh, to be a, a student, to you know, when I go to the gym, I'm intentional to try to learn everyone's name. I, I, I keep, mm. I meet a new guy, I put their, I have an Evernote file, I put their name on here um, because it's important for me to try to learn who are the regulars in this space. Uh, and so, you know, in many ways, a missionary in a cross culture would learn to dress a certain way, act a certain way, speak a certain way, adapt the language of that new culture. You can do that as a follower of Jesus without sinning in this culture. You can mm-hmm. understand what's the lingo. How do I fit in here, so to speak? You know, uh, what does it look like to, to adapt and to incarnate? This is what Jesus did. You know, he came speaking yeah. the language of the people. He came eating the the food that the people ate. Um, you know, he didn't show up like an alien. He showed up right. like a you know a man, you know, an ancient Near East, Middle Eastern man. You know, so mm-hmm. um, and then the third skill is you know how do I add value to the community? So now that I'm yeah. I'm embedded in the community, I'm incarnating the community. How do I add value? How do I bless those around me? Mm. How do I uh, discern what is good news to the people to whom I'm sent? What would feel like a win mm. here? You know, um, is it uh, an act of generosity? Is it a, a, an encouragement? Is it some some form of love? And what could I do to tangibly bless those uh, around me? Uh, and then the fourth practice is, you know, how can I display the kingdom of God in word and deed? You know, is there mm-hmm. is there some way in which I can identify that there's something broken about this place that doesn't reflect the kingdom of God, and that if I um, express beauty here, it'll actually feel more like God. You know, what is the, mm. what, what's, what's lacking, you know? Um, so maybe it's, man, this place is dirty. If someone, if someone picked up trash around here, it would look better. Or this place mm. is super competitive. If I was more encouraging, it would be a better environment. Or there's so much mm. gossip here. So I'm going to be one who says, hey, let's not talk about people when they're not around, you know, mm-hmm. because in my mind, in the kingdom to come, we're not going to, you know, trash each other behind each other's backs. We're going to encourage each other. And so that's what I'm trying to embody. And, uh, and I think as you do that, as you begin to add value and display the kingdom of God, what you're really doing is the fifth skill, which is helping people learn to live like Jesus. You're basically mm-hmm. saying there's a better way to be human. It's the way of Jesus. And, and as I model that for others, I think it's um, it provokes curiosity. You know, there's a, a great line of 
that Michael Frost used where he says, you know, part of the goal of modern Christianity is to live a questionable life. Mm-hmm. Now, he doesn't mean uh, a questionable life in terms of, <laughs> of like, oh, that's a questionable choice you made. But he means more of a, a life that evokes questions, a life where someone's like, why do you do that? Mm-hmm. That's unique. No one else. I, I've never seen anyone do that before. Um, you know, how do you live a life that evokes questions for which the answer to the question is because I follow Jesus? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I notice the way you treat your spouse. I notice the way you parent your kids. I notice the way you take care of a, a neighborhood that that no one's paying you to take care of. Why do you do that? Well, mm-hmm. actually, it's because I'm a follower of Jesus and Jesus came to serve others. And so I'm trying to pattern my life the same way. You know, mm-hmm. or Jesus, you know, I mean, so is there a way in which your life can point to Jesus? Uh, and I think that's the fifth skill of missionary. And then the final thing is to, how do you establish communities um, that are uh, equipping people to do this together. So, I mean, this is what, you know, if I sent you overseas to be a a missionary to Indonesia somewhere, this is the training you would go through, you know, is join a social group, you know, learn the local customs, begin to add value, uh, begin to discern how to make this environment more like the kingdom of God, model life of Jesus for people, and then train up a community to do that. So that skill set is honestly what every disciple Mm -hmm. in our church needs today. Now, the mm. skill set we've given them in the past is invite people to church, maybe host a small group, you know, tithe, give me your tithes and offerings, volunteer on a Sunday morning. Those skill sets were important in Christendom with the way we used to operate churches, but they're pretty irrelevant in the future. And so it's a whole new skill set that we need. And so part of it is just embracing that there's going to be some new tools that our disciples need in order to be able to make disciples in a new culture. Yes. No, I, I, I love that for a couple of reasons. Again, I come back to this, this, um, just the, the reality and the beauty of incarnation and, and this idea where we're living the, the good news, right? That's, that's the skill set of a disciple is living the good news as we're transformed by it. And, and sometimes that doesn't even mean, I think, in my experience, sometimes the, the thing that, that is a barrier is, well, I don't know all the fancy words. I don't know how to exegete this thing of scripture. I don't know. I don't have the seminary degree. But but incarnating, living, putting flesh on the, the good news as we ourselves are transformed in relationship with Jesus, in community with one another as his church. I mean, that's <laughs> that's yeah. beautifully simple. You don't need a degree to do that, right? Mm-hmm. And it's also, you know, mysteriously complex at the same time. But, but <laughs> the idea that, that it is because of who God is, it's actually accessible to all of us. We don't need to gatekeep that. And so these yeah. are skill sets that... Um, we really can be equipping as leaders, equipping all members of our community for, and as members of the community that, that we're in Christ qualified for, right? We don't need to say, oh, actually, I can't do that because I don't, I don't have a seminary degree. No, you, you can live your life that <laughs> is new because of who God is. Um, and so I, I, yeah, I think that that's, that that's an incredible way to think about what it looks like to be equipped to, to participate, to live um, missionally in the spaces where we already are. And that's the other piece. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, Carrie, your, your gatekeeping line, I love that image. And I think that is often um, one of the challenges is there's a sense in which, you know, uh, the keys to the kingdom all lie within the, those who have power and the professionals, you yes. know, I, and it made me think of there's two guys out here in L.A. who, um, you know, are regulars at a, a pub that's near their neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're big fans of an Irish band that plays on a regular basis. And, and so the Irish band was going to play and they invited me to come join them, you know. And and so I hung out with these guys and I was I just I kept remarking. I said, you know, you, you guys have done an incredible job embedding here and they're like what do you mean by embedding i'm like you're regulars i mean you know all the wait staff when they see you they smile they laugh they're glad you're here i said you're good news to them you know um the band loves that you're here because you're big supporters and you're bringing in fans to hear the band so that's good news i said you guys have become kind of locals here and then i said you know what have you what's your kind of strategy for actually going to the next level and making disciples 
And they said, well, we invite people to church. And I said, okay, now wait a minute. I said, so let me get this straight. You have an incredible relationship with all these people. You're good news. They, they trust you. They, they respect you. And then you invite them to come hear me on a Sunday who they don't know in a space that's foreign to them to probably use a language they're not familiar with. And you think that's the most effective way to tell them about Jesus? I said, they don't, they don't give a rip about me. I said, you're here. <laughs> I said, why are you bringing them to church when you've already brought the church here? You know? Yes. And so yes. it's like, if I, I don't want to be the gatekeeper here, you take the keys. Take I don't want it. You know, how, and I remember saying to them, how about I work to equip you to make disciples right here, you know, to figure out how do I, you know, display the kingdom of God? How do I talk about Jesus in a way that resonates? You know, how do I offer to pray for people in a way that feels yeah. appropriate? You know, what would it look like to have a spiritual discussion or even a Bible study in this place? Um, you know, how, how do I invite others to join us as missionaries in this space? And you could see their brain kind of just be like, ah, yeah, that would probably be more effective. <laughs> you know, I was like, yes. yeah, yeah, it would be. And I, I was like, it's not your fault. You've been in churches for 30 years that have not validated that as an authentic mm -hmm. way to make disciples because the gatekeepers yes. have said, no, 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 no. Your job is to build a relationship and then invite them to us and we'll do the work from there. You know, so flipping that script, inverting that, you know, that directional impulse from in to Sunday to out into the world, the sentness that we were talking about is, is so key. Yes, yes. And I love um, how you say the church is already here, right? We don't need to then this this idea of, well, we got to invite folks back into church. The, ch the church is, is here. Yeah. And so equipping folks. What does what does that look like to to live that and and the fact that it can be um, just part of the everyday right This is just in your your regular life rhythms where this can happen. And that's why I love that phrase where you where you live, work, and play, you mm. know, because this can just be within um, the things that you already have interest in. Or you know, I think sometimes when we when we think about mission or <laughs> evangelism, we have we have this idea that we have to become people that we aren't already instead of who God has already made us to be. But if you like Irish music at the pub, <laughs> then <laughs> why don't you be the church <laughs> yeah. at the pub that has Irish music? Or if you like um, I don't know, if you like dance, why why don't you be the church there, we don't have to become people that we're not. We can be who who we are in Christ and, and be the church in those pieces of our neighborhoods and our communities. Um, and because we already know the language of those people, because that's who we are. You know, <laughs> if you already, and I mean, and even that example you said of the woman who's a, who was a, an actress, she yeah. already knows the language of Hollywood because that's who she is. Yeah. Yeah. G I mean, yeah. Jesus needs people in every nook and cranny of culture and society. Right. And and there in, in our culture today, there are so many unique tribes, you know, people who have found each other on the Internet who are, you know, interested in something similar. And, and, and God needs to he wants, you know, a gospel witness and all those different places. We have neighbors who we met recently um, who we learned were followers of Jesus. And we had lunch with them and we ended up hearing a little bit of their story. Uh, they actually, the, he's the CEO of a company that builds all the mm -hmm. obstacle courses for reality shows. So American Ninja Warrior, oh. The Floor is Lava. And I said, well, how'd you get into that? And he said, well, actually, we were elite level rock climbers, he and his wife. And so for basically 10 years, they lived on $25,000 a year in a van traveling around rock climbing. And he said, we saw ourselves as missionaries to the rock climbing community. Mm. Mm -hmm. And he said, it's a, it's kind of a tight knit community, elite level rock climbers. And everywhere we'd go, we'd, you know, live in our tent for a week and climb all day and sit around the fire at night and have spiritual conversations, you know? Yeah. And I, and I just said, that's incredible. And, and he ended up sharing a story. He said, there's one guy, atheist, never into anything, didn't want to talk to us about stuff, thought we were weird, wacko Christians. He said, and then one day, we're, we're hanging off the side of El Capitan in Yosemite, which is one of the, you know, the pinnacle climbs that you'd ever want to make. He's like, we're literally, you know, on a ledge, sleeping in our sleeping bags, staring up at the skies. And all of a sudden he starts opening up about his spiritual questions. And I thought, mm. 
man, this is incredible. You know, we spent years investing in this guy. Um, and right now on the side of a rock face, he's finally ready to talk about God, you know? And I was like, man, that's so, that's the win. Like that's, that's the missionary life that, you know, I think everyone needs to embrace. That guy was never coming to church, mm-hmm. you know, but you and he had a little moment, an encounter with Jesus right there on the side of a mountain, uh, because you met him in a place that he loved to play, you know, a yeah. third space. And so how do we get more missionaries into those spaces to have those meaningful conversations that, that only take place sometimes in the middle of the night on a rock face, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And because, because, and this is for like, are we convinced that Jesus is already in those spaces? Yeah. Right. And at work in those spaces, or is he only at work in church buildings? Is he only ministering yeah. in church buildings? And yeah. so I think that that's, that's a beautiful... Well, uh, and Kara, I know we have to wrap up. I, I think that that's yes. a great truth because you, you asked earlier about how do you encourage pastors. I, I do think that um, one of the old paradigms of Christendom was kind of that like God exists in the church, like God works in mm-hmm. the church spaces. He exists in sacred spaces like sanctuaries. We have to get people there to experience him. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you recognize that there is not one square inch of all of creation that Jesus does not declare, this is mine, yes. you know, and that mm-hmm. God is, Jesus is already at work in the lives of every person mm-hmm. around us. He cares about them more than we do. You know, he's the great evangelist. And so what one of the things we've talked about a lot in this training of missionaries is you are not going and meeting someone in initiating a spiritual work in their life. You are meeting someone and you are saying to the Holy Spirit, show me how you're already working in their life. Mm-hmm. Even Jesus said, I don't do anything that, I, that the Father is not already doing, meaning I'm just joining my Father's work in the world. And I think for us as Christians, we're just joining Jesus's work in the world. There's not a burden on us. If we resist mm-hmm. it, Jesus doesn't go, oh, I guess I can't do it. He keeps working. He says, well, I'll get someone else. And so, you know, when I meet people and start having spiritual conversations, I'm like, Jesus, show me how you're already at work in this person's life. You know, what avenues are you taking to try to reveal yourself? And then and then let me be part of that. You know, and that takes so much burden and pressure off of you Mm -hmm. to feel like it's all on me, you know, to break through this person's heart. It's like, no, that's not that's just not how God works. You know, Mm -hmm. no, that's good. I do have um one one more question for sure. you as as we do look at wrapping up you know i i think this this idea of of mobile equipping and, and mobilizing or you know engaging everyone and then equipping and empowering them so, to participate in ministry um can seem all well and good but then maybe we can get scared like it can also seem like it it tempts chaos you know (laughs) because oh there's a lot of folks doing a lot of things all over and and if we're the leaders maybe the ones responsible well we can't control all of that and so can you can you just um, maybe speak a little bit to that and what it actually looks like when a community of followers are equipped and empowered to participate in what God is doing in their midst in this way. Chaos. Yeah, that's beautiful. (laughs) There is a little controlled chaos to the kingdom of God sometimes. Um, (laughs) Yeah, you know, I think the, the, again, I tend to think in pictures and analogies, right? And so the Mm -hmm. The analogy that um, I found most helpful to think about the way churches were traditionally structured and the way we need to kind of lean into restructuring them is is just this analogy of a a restaurant versus a food truck. You know, so Mm -hmm. um, most American churches for the last 50 years have operated like a restaurant where you had one owner, you know, and a general manager and you had uh, employees who each had individual jobs, but it was a brick and mortar location, nice signage, good advertising. You invited people to come to your restaurant and you provided them a high quality meal. Um, you know, you had a, a menu for kids, a menu for, for older people. Um, and the, the experience was the key. If people had a good experience, if they liked the food, they'd invite other friends into this space. Um, and you've always fed them in a place. And if it got successful, you, you, maybe you grew, you know, you, you, you built a bigger building or maybe you franchised and put a bunch of these restaurants all over town. Um, and successful restaurants, you know, sometimes the chef became a celebrity. They got their own cookbooks or their own TV shows. And in a lot of ways, um, but it was very controlled. I mean, it was very top down structured. Right. 
Um, and, and this is kind of how the church has operated. You know, you've had a, a board or a, a pastor who is, is kind of the CEO of this restaurant and maybe the, the chef and, and trying to hire people to do one specific job that ultimately still allows them to do the main thing, which is cooking the big meal. Um, and you, you said to people, you got to come to us if you want to get fed. There's a whole other paradigm of feeding people, and it happens in cities, which is, you know, that there's a whole fleet of food trucks that are present in Los Angeles right now that are going to where people already do life. They're not saying you got to come to us. And I think for the, the future church is going to look more like a fleet of food trucks where um, you actually give away power and you in, encourage and embrace people to think creatively in small teams about what what meal, what what food delicacy could we create that would resonate with the people in the place that we love, you know? So we're going to go down to the beach and we're going to do fish tacos, you know, um, and or we're going to, um, you know, go over here and do Korean wings, you know, because that's my specialty. That's part of my heritage. I, you know, I'm from Korea and I, you know, Korean spicy wings is, is a delicacy. So I'm, we're going to go serve that, you know. But something that originates out of the passion and calling of that team. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, is honestly much more nimble and, and flexible and can drive around and find people where they are um, and, and yet can still provide a meal that satisfies the hunger. Um, and, and I will say that, you know, a fleet of food trucks feels a lot more chaotic than one restaurant where everyone comes to me and I can close the doors in the night and I can shut down the business. I don't know what's happening with if I was empowering a fleet of food trucks, you know. But if you look at the early church, that is controlled chaos. I mean, you know, Paul's doing his best to try to stay connected. Some of these itinerant apostles, you know, but man, they're writing letters back and forth. And there's a lot of crazy things happening, you know, in the church in Corinth and church in Ephesus. And yet the Holy Spirit is ultimately working through all of that. And so, you know, I think the command and control mentality that we have has to be released. We have to surrender more of a, um, you know, a spirit empowered chaos that that god is going to do something new and um and that he's okay with it you know there, there mm. will be more mystery and wonder i think in the future of the church um than than the industrialized control uh, and command structure that we've had mm. so maybe we will have to give up a little bit of that control oh just, wow you know yeah it's <laughs> just a, a little bit just a little bit a little bit of chaos yeah. <laughs> No, I I really like that that image um, of the restaurant versus food truck model. So thank you for sharing that with us. Mm-hmm. So as we go ahead and wrap up, as you know, it's our tradition. We've got some fun questions lined up for you. So are you ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. Perfect. All right. If you could take credit for one invention, any invention, what would it be? Wow. If I could take credit for it. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a great invention that I love right now. Um, I mean, I, I think air conditioning. I'd love to be the guy who invented Ooh, air yeah, conditioning. Yeah, that's a good one. You know? So I'm not <laughs> sure that the, the net effect of air conditioning has improved the social relationships in our lives. But as someone who lives in Southern California, there's nothing better than walking into a, a house with air conditioning and uh, immediately feeling the comfort of that. And, and nothing better than a, a summer nap in a good air conditioned room as well. Mm. Yeah, the, that's a good one. That's a good one. This one. OK, this one's tough. And there's only one right answer. <laughs> Are you a dog person or a cat person? Oh, man neither is my I'm allergic to cats and I never had dogs <laughs> my my four, my son turned 14 okay, yesterday okay. and my my wife and my 16 year old daughter and my 14 year old son all went to a cat cafe without me on his birthday that just goes to show <laughs> they're like no dad we're not bringing you I, if I had to choose I'd say a dog person probably okay, so okay. There, there are some okay. there are some cute dogs in our neighborhood that I enjoy you know, saying yeah. hi for the to record, that's not the right answer. That's but, not the right know, answer. Okay. I could tell. No, no. <laughs> okay. What is the worst job that you've ever had? Oh man, I was 19 and I got a job. I had to join a union. Um, and my job was climbing into air conditioning duct work 
and vacuuming them out on the inside. And so if you can imagine a, a literally like a, a duct box that was just big enough to fit in, my job was to climb into it and then shimmy along it with a full respirator on my face and vacuum it out from the inside. And one of the locations was a gymnasium in Minnesota that had had a lot of fire damage. And the gymnasium was like three stories high. And so I had to climb into ductwork that was suspended from the ceiling three stories high and go all the way along the roof of the gym. So the entire time I'm vacuuming, I'm thinking no, if this thing you. breaks loose, I'm dying. So yeah, yeah no, that was pretty you. intense. No, <laughs> That sounds pretty intense. No. <laughs> all right. I'm a 90s kid. So what's your favorite thing about the 90s? I got to know. Uh, neon. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. like, I mean, that's, that's, that's more 80s, maybe. I'm trying to think. But I do love a good, I, I love yeah. green, yellow, neon. I like people who play neon golf balls. I like, you know, neon mm-hmm. shirts and stuff. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. That early 90s fashion, for sure. Yes, for sure. absolutely. That was my high school days. <laughs> I'm, I'm class of 93, so. Ah, uh, yes, yes. All right, and last one. I'm going to give you another shot at your best joke. So maybe second best. That's right, second best. <laughs> so uh, what is Beethoven's favorite fruit? Banana. <laughs> Very good. Very good. <laughs> I snuck in two banana jokes on my two podcasts. So, you know. Yes. That's all I yes. got. Yes. You know, fruit's good for you. It's good fruit. for the soul. <laughs> oh, well, John, I really appreciate your time again. And I thank you so much for sharing. And my my hope and my prayer for our listeners is that um, we would be open to what God is doing, what he's saying, and maybe some of the opportunities that he's inviting us to, some of the things that he's inviting us to say yes and amen to. And maybe that's even a, a food truck versus a restaurant. Everyone loves a good taco truck. <laughs> right. So thank you so much for sharing out of your experience and out of your journey with us. And friends, don't forget to go on ahead and check out his book, Positively Irritating, to learn more. Um, and I would love to offer up a word of prayer to close us out today. So let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much that you are good and that you are pleased to be our God, that you are present and active in our midst. And we thank you that you are a dynamic God, that you're not stagnant, that you are alive and well. And so we thank you that that you invite us into new things and new opportunities. Um, We thank you that you don't give up on us or leave us behind. Mm -hmm. And so we ask that you would help us to discern what it is that you're doing in all of our contexts. Um, We ask that you would help us to discern what it is that you're doing in each of our neighborhoods and communities and each of our personal lives. What is it, the giftings that you've given us, the passions, the things that we love to do, the the communities and niches that you have made us to belong to, um, all so that we can spread the good news of belonging in you. God, and as in, as leaders particularly, I pray that you would help us to become equippers of your saints, mm. that we could become just carriers of your word and your good news to every nook and cranny and corner of our neighborhoods, of our communities, of, of our world. Um, I pray that you would help us to trust you and that you've got this even when it mm. seems chaotic to us um, and help us to be... Um, just able to say yes and amen to what it is that you're doing, to let go and repent of the things that make us comfortable um, when they are not in step with what it is that, that you're doing. And we know that it's hard. We confess that it's hard. So we ask for your help. Um, we ask you to guide us. And God, I thank you for um, uh, just the bright future that you that you have for your church um, I thank you that you are faithful to us, that you continue to, to restore and to draw us in um, and to make us into the people and the community that you've always meant us to be. And that in your very own body, you have made it so that you can never leave us behind. And so we thank you for that truth um, and that that reassurance. So we thank you and we praise you and we ask you to make us 
better participants in your mission, your life, your ministry, all for your glory. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Yes, and amen. Amen. Well, folks, until next time, keep on living and sharing the gospel. We want to thank you for listening to this episode of the GC Podcast. We hope you have found value in it to become a healthier leader. We would love to hear from you. If you have a suggestion on a topic or if there is someone who you think we should interview, email us at info at gci.org. Remember, healthy churches start with healthy leaders. Invest in yourself and your leaders.